Snap Studios. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. There's a podcast that other podcasters often refer to with each other, mostly with wonder and awe. Other times with anger, because the subjects that Love and Radio, under its creator Nick Vanderkolk, choose to focus on, subjects are often odd, weird, strange. So just imagine my trepidation when Nick calls to inquire about featuring me on his show. Specifically, he wants to know about my life growing up in an apocalyptic, end-of-days, white supremacist Jesus cult, a cult led by one man, Herbert Armstrong, or as he called himself, Herbert W. Armstrong. I later learned that W doesn't really stand for anything. And Nick, Nick wants to go deep. And in talking, Nick reminds me that our apostle, this Herbert W. Armstrong, our dear leader, the man who told us he spoke directly to God for God. When I was a child, he intimated that select chosen members of our church would be magicked away to a place of safety while the rest of the world burned under the final war. And make no mistake about it, we believed We wanted to make it as one of those chosen few. And we also believe that this place of safety for the chosen would most likely be in Petra, wherever that is. As a youngster, I was uncertain. And in recalling all of this, this rush of memories and emotions, Nick, Nick, the dastardly fellow that he is, Nick played the voice, Herbert W. Armstrong's voice, the voice that haunted me since the day I was born. And hearing him again, it resurrected an aspect of my childhood that I spent a lifetime running away from. following is a special presentation of The World Tomorrow with Herbert W. Armstrong. I speak as a voice crying out in the 20th century wilderness of religious confusion showing what is soon coming on this world. The subject of Armageddon and the end of the world has been appearing in the public press more or less often in the last 25 years. 
the disciples asked Jesus Christ for a sign of his second coming and the end of the world. And he replied, as you find in Matthew 24 and verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Believe it or not, he was speaking of this very program. Did you ever go to Petra? I've never been to Petra. I've never been to Petra. That was the whole deal. Like there was a, We're definitely going to a place of safety. But I was like, go live in a cave. I don't know. I was thinking like, you know, like a spaceship or a weather balloon, the moon, something, something cool. But from what I understand, this is more than just a cave. This is one of the, the stone archaeological wonders of the world. There's statues and frescoes. I've never been. you got to tell me what it's like. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. There's a scene where they go into the temple where eventually they find the Holy Grail and that the entrance to that That's Petra? is Petra, yeah. If there's going to be some like crazy post-apocalyptic Jesus coming down from heaven, it's going to be in a place like that for sure. The idea was we're going to go live in the caves of Petra for three and a half years and then Jesus was going to come back and set things right. It was imminent. Any moment, um, things are about to be over unless you got your act right. I was a true believer. From Luminary, you're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolf. Today's episode, The World Tomorrow, featuring Glenn Washington. supremacist uh, doomsday cult I think a, a lot of a lot of my work in general a lot of my storytelling is trying to answer that question how do you get into the be in the middle of a white supremacist Jesus cult they didn't lead with the uh, the white supremacy aspect of it that was something that uh, that came out once you got more into the theology when I was 11 years old I was uh, sitting in church next to my buddy, and the pastor starts talking about the story of the flood that you don't know, the secret story of the flood. Noah, God tells him he's got to go and make this ark. And Noah starts doing it because Noah's faithful. And then animals start filing in two by two. Cool. People are still partying, being sinful. Noah gets in the ark with his wife and his three kids. The rains come down for 40 days and 40 nights. The ship sails for a year. And finally, it stops, and the world is clean and it's new. It's free of sin. All this sin has been washed away by this flood that was sent by the Lord. And then Noah gets out, and... He's so happy. He's so happy. He does a dance of joy to the Lord and finally falls down exhausted. And when he falls down exhausted, brethren, that's when the bad thing happens. One of his sons, one of his sons who was on that boat with him, one of his sons defiles him, 
does something evil to his body when he is in a sense of slumber, it is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. And when the Lord found out about it, when Noah woke up, the Lord cursed that son, cursed him. And brethren, brethren, you can see the effects of that curse here today because that curse is the color of a black man's skin because they are the descendants of the person of the son who committed that evil deed against Noah. Now, that's what I heard. I was 11 or 12 years old. I'm thinking it's bullshit, but again, I'm 11, I'm 12. I don't, I, I don't, I don't have my a, a conception of the Bible. I don't feel like enough of authority to be able to push back as much as my feelings want me to. Here's the dirty thing. This is the secret part. Is that as pernicious an evil, an impact that the lie of white superiority has on white people. It has an even more dire impact on black people because black people believe it too. And that was the case. That was the the organization. A lot of the black people would believe something like that. And they would pass on that sense of (sighs) inferiority on to the next generation. You know, even now I feel sometimes that me fighting that feels like you're shadow boxing. On one hand, I grew up with these people. I grew up in a very crazed religious, well, mostly white community. And so nothing like that to put a lie to the to any idea of white superiority of any type. <laughs> it was complete madness. But these ideas, um, it's deeply baked into the American psyche. And this is just one manifestation of it. I think that I grew up in an extreme manifestation of it. But again, the dirty little secret is that as much as Whites believe white superiority. A lot of blacks believe it too. The theology is like this. I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's, this, this is going to be hard for even come out of my head. The head of the church, this guy Herbert W. Armstrong, there's a passage in Genesis about Noah. The Lord calls Noah perfect in his generations. And what that means has been argued by a lot of different people for a lot of different ways. But what the head of our church said that meant was that he was the holder of a pure white genetic lineage. And the pure white genetic lineage. <laughs> okay, so this is what this I'm, 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 try, I'm going to do the best I can because it doesn't make a lot of sense. It didn't make any sense to me then. It doesn't make any sense to me now. Somehow, like this guy. Herbert W. Armstrong was a recipient of this 
unbroken strain of pure white genetic lineage. And somehow he traced his heritage to the House of Windsor. And through the House of Windsor, he traced his lineage back to Jesus. And from Jesus, he traced it back to Noah. And from Noah, he traced it back to Adam. It was this pure, unbroken white strain that resulted in the head of our organization, Herbert W. Armstrong. Now, what I did speak to my father, my parents, about, I was like, that don't make no damn sense. And my father, to his credit, said, yes, this is stupid. We wrote a biblical research paper and sent it in to headquarters of our church in Pasadena, California, because all good cults are based in California. We sent it in there. They said there were this august group of biblical scholars was going to get back to us, and they eventually sent us a form letter. But that was kind of the beginning of the end for me, actually. I just thought that the racial thing was insane. And now, this is a recent revelation to myself. I think had it not been for this extreme racist aspect of that church, if I didn't have to confront it so directly, so personally as a black person, that I might have stayed in it longer than I did. In that sense, I'm almost happy that the racism forced me out. I think that might be the first time that I've ever heard someone find some some silver lining in, in racism. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it was a hard one. And I, I tell these stories to my kids and they're like, what in the world are you talking about? This is mad crazy. And it is mad crazy. And I want them to think it is crazy because it is. And it is hard to go back and say what the silver linings are. But everything was so <sighs> internalized. That sense of otherness, of being an outsider, even though I was born into this group. Beyond the sort of the theology of it, how did the white supremacy or racism manifest itself? Were interracial relationships allowed within the group? No, no. And that was a big deal for me because I'm a young, young kid. I'm heterosexual male, like the ladies, love brown ladies in my area. There weren't any. So, at one point, there's a, there's a church camp. Go away for three weeks for this church camp. I think it was 14 or 15. And they have a dance. Now, they pull you aside and they tell you, you're not allowed to dance with anybody and you're not allowed to sit next to a, a girl of another race and I'm just like what really I mean I know I heard it I know y'all said it but how can this really be I'm there to might be three other black girls and there's like you know hundreds of white people I'm sitting there looking stupid kind of going this stinks this is not for me and the cutest most darling beautiful girl white girl comes up to me and asks me if I want to dance I thought, well, it's kind of dark. And if I kind of bend down a little bit and we get right in the middle of the, of the group, maybe I can pull this off, which I tried. 
And no, I do not pull this off. It takes all of about 15 seconds before I get a tap on the shoulder and I get called the back room, the office, and get the scolding of how deep I'm out there defiling this, this white girl and, it, and I should know better and it's wrong. And then you could then call my parents and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, it was dark. I didn't know exactly who was who and what was what. <laughs> Did you ever keep your, your personal history a secret as an adult, or, or were you always upfront about it? No, this is the thing. It's like, I was an outsider within that group that I grew up in, but I was very much in the group. But as a black kid, you, you just got, you got on the edges of it. And then when I realized I was, I was leaving, I had to go away, and I wanted to build a life outside of it. I was, was going to go to college. And I go, and I'm an, I'm an alien on top of an alien. I had to fake normalcy. Like, I had never been to a birthday party. Birthday parties were not allowed. You couldn't celebrate your own birthday. And I didn't know what to do when all of a sudden people threw me a surprise party. I was petrified, confused. Afraid. What, is, what is happening? All the things that people take for granted in the United States, the prom, the, you know, homecoming, all that stuff. I didn't have any history of that. I didn't know any of that stuff. I didn't have a, a high school experience that paralleled anyone because everything that we did, I had to be in church. I never went to a football game. I never asked a girl to dance. I never did any of that stuff. And I had to pretend like I was like everybody else. <laughs> I wanted all that to be the biggest secret ever. I do not lead with, how you doing, darling? Um, I grew up in a cult, so I'm not sure how this step goes or what this dance is or what to say. It was almost like I was a, a middle schooler trying to pretend like he's a high school senior. Do you think there's, there's any other secret that's had a bigger impact on your life? Um, yeah. We've just gotten started. Snap's Love and Radio special, The World Tomorrow, continues in just a moment. Stay tuned. Support for Snap Judgment comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is the only software your business will ever need. Featuring a suite of integrated business applications, Odoo connects your business operations together so you can get more done in less time. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it. Odoo's got it. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash snap. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash snap. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. 
the World Tomorrow episode. Yours truly, deep in conversation with Nick Vanderkolk from the podcast Love and Radio. We're talking about my time growing up in the Worldwide Church of God cult. Please note, this piece does contain graphic elements. Snap judgment. Do you think there's there's any other secret that's had a bigger impact on your life? Um yeah. Yeah. The thing that kind of drove my family that just shaped all of our histories. When I was 3 years old, we're at my grandmother's house. One of my uncles got into an altercation with another one of my uncles over something, over treating my grandmother properly or something of this nature. And one of my uncles had a gun, uh, told his brother to back off, told it to him again. His brother screaming at him, screaming at him, come on, do it. Do it, do it, do it. You got the gun, do it. I believe I'm under the table. And one uncle shoots the other uncle and kills him. So my my earliest memory is that. My second earliest memory is of my grandmother holding my hand, saying, it's going to be okay, baby. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay, baby. It's going to be okay. As tears are streaming down our face. (laughs) Even as a little kid, you know, when your grandma was crying, that it's going to be okay, that nothing's ever going to be okay. That incident in my grandmother's back room, that incident shaped Everything. It gave the impetus for us to leave Detroit and leave my family behind. I was kind of ripped from that bosom of a big, warm family. It drove, I think, my parents to try to set up a a barrier between that family and us. The way they did it was through this wacky church. I wonder if we would have ever have been involved with all that craziness if the bullet missed. Or, you know, when something like that happens, you can trace the ramifications for generations. My uncle who, who pulled the trigger, he might as well have aimed it at himself because... It took two lives. What I remember about most is like the sense of um, having to all of a sudden walk around eggshells around my grandmother. The sense to see the light go away. My grandmother was a lively, spirited, cantankerous person and to see that to see her suddenly shrunken 
was just weird and hard and as a kid you're not you don't you don't have the vocabulary to understand what's going on when that when that kind of thing goes on it was ever present in all of our lives it made me think of my own like what would it take for me to do that to my own brother what how can anyone ever get to that point i'm mad at him but can i ever do that you question every single interaction under a new filter when that happens within your own family. Do I have it in me? Is this something I could do? Is this a rage thing in me? You know, when you see that in your family, it feels like there is nothing you can do to prepare for it. I'm really mad right now. Am I that mad? Am I out of control? Could I do something to somebody? Is this in me in this way? Am I crazy? Uh, certainly my some, some of my people have acted crazy in the past. Am I one of them? Am I immune? I'm stunned the white people that I grew up with don't recognize the extreme racist environment that we grew up in. We didn't really have any racism growing up. What? <laughs> what? We created books of white supremacist theology that were, are in fact used by Klan groups that came from our organization. A few years ago, we had a reunion of our youth group that I grew up with in church. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go. <laughs> and uh, everyone's like, okay, Mr. Storyteller, you don't want to go. This is a story. And what are you talking about? You're not going to go. So I was like, all right. Get my little plane ticket. I fly back to Michigan. Get in the rental car. Go up to the the little hall. It's like somewhere outside of Lansing. It's it's middle of winter. It's cold. It's this VFW hall, and and I get there and I'm standing outside and I don't really want to go in. I'm like, oh Lord, I do not want to go in here. I do not want to see these people. I do not want to do it. And I go in. I hear this, Glenn, like. I was Norm from Cheers. The hug and the kiss and the, it's been a long time. This is a group of people, we've been through a war together. And it was so amazing seeing everybody. So amazing seeing these people I grew up with. At one point we go to sit down and the woman next to me, she's, you know, we're gonna have our little cream corn and mashed potatoes and our little chicken dinner, whatever it's gonna be. And the woman next to me, she lifts a glass to me and she said, can you believe we grew up in that cult. I was lifting my glass of toaster. And a woman directly across from us, she says, what cult? And the divide there was just like, we were like, are you serious? She's going to say, are you serious? It was just such an odd thing. Later I get up and I'm walking around, I'm talking to people. And I go to one woman who I haven't seen in forever. And we're talking, we're talking, we're talking. I knew she was very, very close to a youth minister. I asked her how he's doing. And she looked at me, and I swear to God, it was a millisecond. It was a millisecond. And I knew that relationship was not appropriate. And I just hugged her. And she cried, and she cried, and she cried. <sighs> I've since found out 
that over half of the women that I grew up with that were close to me in that organization were abused by someone in that organization as well. And I didn't know that. I never saw that. And it kills me that I was as blind to their pain as I'm saying they were blind to mine. I would, you know, you're just a stupid kid, but. Oh, Glenn. Yeah, sucks. Truth. Nick, um, I don't have the uh, psychological terminology for this, but I know that if you talk to anyone in the street, anyone, pick any person at random, and you ask them what their story is, more often than not, they're going to tell you a story of trauma. It's crazy. Look, what's your story? And if you really get a real answer out of them, it's a story of trauma. And it stops at a point of trauma. They will stop their their story they're telling themselves about themselves stops in a point of trauma. So one of these days I'm going to write a, a book called Narrative Therapy because really that's all it is. It's like, how do you tell yourself your own story? How do you move past that trauma? I think one of the first things you got to do is decide what your story is and what you want your story to be. What do you want it to be? did get to like a university setting it's like everyone goes home for Christmas <laughs> I wasn't going home for Christmas I thought I was just going to stay my behind right there on campus and eat my little canned soup or whatever one of my buddies he heard I was going to stay he's like oh no you're not you're coming home with me I was like okay and I had my first Christmas <laughs> and it's my first Christmas. I didn't realize later on how it might not be the most traditional Christmas of all. It's one of my best friends, still one of my best friends in the world. His family is from India and Pakistan. You know, they're going to have a Christmas curry. And everybody's going to be there. And everybody's going to fight and holler and yell and scream at each other. But everybody loves each other because that's the way they talk to each other. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not used to that. The, the, and the presents and the pajamas and the Christmas tree, the evil, evil Christmas tree that I grew up with, putting a Ganesha figurine on the Christmas tree at the top instead of a star. Even now, even today, I still put a Ganesha on my Christmas trees with my kids because I felt that warmth of that household. I'm, not, I'm nobody's Hindu, but it was such a, a different model of love and 
appreciation and family and holiday. I still get great joy from it. This episode was produced by Andrew Gill, Nikki Stein, and Phil Demohofsky. And of course, it featured the voice of Glenn Washington, the host of the public radio show Snap Judgment, as well as their scary spinoff, the luminary exclusive Spooked. For more information about the music we feature on the show, stunning episode art, and transcripts, please visit our website, loveandradio.org. Love and Radio's producer is Phil Demohofsky. Stephen Jackson is our contributing editor. We are brought to you by Luminary and made possible thanks to its subscribers. Thank you. Sure to check out our brand new Secrets Hotline podcast online at secretshotline.org, on Instagram at The Secrets Hotline, on the Luminary app, and for free wherever you find your podcasts. Yes, we have gone deep into the cult, but when Snap returns, we're going deeper still. Stay tuned. Judgment, the World Tomorrow episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and I'm here with Nick Vanderkolk from the podcast Love and Radio. Nick, this story that you just did about Herbert W. Armstrong, about myself, about all kinds of things, um, it takes me back to a place I'm not sure that I wanted to revisit. Why'd you do that? Well, I, I don't know how you feel about this, Glenn, but I feel like in, in our line of work, it requires uh, a really weird mix of deep empathy and complete sociopathy. You have to have, have deep feelings for how people are experiencing things, but also push them through to you bleed, you know, for the public to some degree. Nick, I, I feel like um, that the name... Love and radio is somewhat a misnomer because so often on your show, we get to meet a monster. And are you calling yourself a monster, Glenn? I am not calling myself a monster. <laughs> I was but a wee lad when this story that you just told unfolded. I was but a wee when I would maybe become a monster later on. You can ask um, the staff around here if that's the case, but. Oftentimes on your show, I'm feeling neither love nor radio. Um, there is a sense of dread that centers on some very amazing, sometimes very twisted characters. And the story that we just heard, that character has since passed away. 
I think, uh, Herbert W. Armstrong. What did you learn about this guy? Like, I knew him just as this, that, you know, this, this, this symbol, this head of our church, this man who spoke to the Lord, this guy who had the truth, this person who inspired all this awe and reverence and such. You came at this from a different angle. When you think about this guy, who did you meet? To me, he's he's less interesting, I think, than than you are, to be honest with you. I've covered a lot of kind of cults on the show and cult leaders and how they gain a following. To me, I think in the, the whole reason that I wanted to talk about this with you in the first place is is I just is that central question of, you know, how does a black family join a white supremacist cult, you know? And so I feel like I learned way more about you, Glenn, than I did about him. I, I feel like I got to see a whole a whole new side of you, you know? And that, I remember, you know, we we worked together yes. um, years ago, and, and you would tell me these, these stories, and you were telling me stuff in this interview that I had never heard before over many years, you know? And just the... the the, the trauma that you experienced, the trauma that, you know, your, your fellow congregants experienced and, and how multifaceted and varied that is. I mean, I just, I, I, I continue to be amazed. I mean, I've been doing this work for the better part of 17 years now. And I, I, I just continue to be amazed how much stuff people just are, are working through, you know? Um, and whether that's you or, or the other folks who, who came out of this, um, everyone's got something that they're dealing with. And so I think I would just push back a little bit on this idea that, that love and radio is a, you know, that we focus on twisted folks. I don't think that's true. I think, I think I, I, I want to see the humanity in everyone. Mm. It's funny that you bring it back to that central question and of this interview, which was how did a black family end up in a white supremacist Jesus cult. And we did this interview and you did your research. I'm listening to this piece from start to finish. And I guess I don't know exactly still why that happened. And you have a external viewpoint on this story. Why do you imagine that a black family ended up with the Herbert W. Armstrong crew. I mean, my the impression that you left with me was was this incident with your uncle, that that was a driving force and kind of uprooted you from your life. And I think when any individual or a family gets uprooted like that, you know, someone who comes along who offers a, a clear vision of the future, even if it's a crazy one, I think that that can become much more appealing. So I, I, I don't know, but I do, I do know that when people are, are, are uprooted, that's the time, that's, the, that's when the vulnerability occurs. And so even if a group has a message that's racist or weird or, or you know, anything that might turn someone off, if they're speaking with a, a level of certainty, that creates a grounding for people that I think if you're ungrounded, it, it, it satisfies a need. Yeah. I feel like there definitely was a level of certainty 
a level of we know what's coming next, a very sort of bifurcated view of the world. And I also know that Nick Vanderkolk's storytelling doesn't have oftentimes a clear ending or a pat answer. What are you looking for at the end of a story? I think I, w- I want to be surprised, you know? By the end of the story, I want to feel like I've gone outside my comfort zone. By the end of the story, I want to feel like I've walked away with a, with a different understanding of a person. And I feel like I, I got that with you, you know? We've known each other for a long time. You used to be a Snap Judgment story producer. We've spoken about a lot of these issues. I guess I'm wondering, what about it surprised you? I think I think the the story of of your uncle and how you you tied that in to to that experience and I think um, this is hardly surprising but I I was really moved by the level of empathy that you had for for folks who experienced a completely different set of messed up reality within the cult which was which wasn't racialized you know I think. I just found that very moving. And I think that's the other thing I look for. I want to be, I want to be moved, you know? I want to feel something, as, as you do, you know? I do, and I, I so appreciate you doing this piece because it's one of those things where, I guess I tell you this in therapy, that there's so many things you want to hide from yourself and maybe taking a good, hard look at your own past might help you with some of the things that you're currently dealing with. And I hear that. I hear that, like at least I hear that, uh, the words of that, but the practice of it is sometimes difficult. Well, let me let me ask you this. When did you actually listen to the piece? Because we, we finished it like more than a year ago. Yeah. I'll tell you the truth. I started to listen to it shortly after it went public on, on Love and Radio. And when I heard the tape from Herbert W. Armstrong, that voice, I couldn't take it. And I turned it off. The clip that you used is from the show called The World Tomorrow. And that show was such the soundtrack of my youth. And it just hearing it made me feel trapped and small and insignificant and um i that 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 uh, that weight came back and it came back in like four seconds and i'm a grown-ass man and it came back so hard that i had to turn it off and i haven't listened to it before this show i had to go back nick even after giving that interview and sit down and say, you, get, you, better, you better listen to the piece. You better listen to the whole thing. And look my own monster, or should I say, hear my, the, my monster's voice again. Yeah. And that was hard. And I don't even know why. I, it's, it's so funny because the, the man is dead. He's been dead for some time. And um, as much as I celebrated that fact, I was still... <laughs> somehow how does how in the world could just the voice still have that effect on me i i don't so it's funny to admit but i I guess i should really thank you because 
just like they say, just like they say, when you, when you finally face the monster, you feel better. Yeah. I, I, I think that there's something about story in general. Like you help people look back at their story with, with a little bit of extra power, empathy. You're holding someone's hand as they relate some, sometimes some very difficult things that happen to them. And at the end of that experience, they come out, at least I came out, feeling a lot better. Do you do that purposefully? I, I think that's mostly on instinct. But I do think that, um, I mean, look, I don't want to, I don't want to sound overly earnest is, is not usually my thing here, but, but I do think that when, when you can relay a story, you are the one who is shaping it. You are the one who's taking ownership over it. Even though what happened in this organization happened to you, when you turn it into a story it turns into something that you are the driving force. And I, I do think that that is a powerful act. Now, there's a caveat, of course, which is, you know, you don't want to re-traumatize people. And, uh, you know, it sounds like you experienced that when you were listening to that, that clip from I feel the world tomorrow. I, it was my own fault. I should have just... I stuck through just a few more seconds Nick when you <laughs> I should I should have just I, I should have kept the play I just at the time I was I couldn't do it yeah well you do it when you're you do it when you're ready for it you know and if you need to shut it off you shut it off like that's how um that's that's you know something that I've I've really um I've really tried to cultivate in my audience you know is I'm not I'm not ha holding people's hands. I'm kind of throwing them in the deep end, you know? Um, and that is the nice thing about podcasts is you can, you can pause it, you can rewind it, you can, you can stop. I think the experience of listening to podcasts, you know, the, the audience has sort of a sense of control that I think is important as well. So I'm glad, I'm glad you walked away from it as a good experience. I was a little worried after our interview. <laughs> I'll be honest. Oh, um, it was it was a good experience, and I appreciate it. I actually now I especially appreciate it. And I, I, it's like you gave me um you gave me a document that if I meet someone now, and they're like, you know, why'd you do that? Or where'd you come from? Or what's 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 wrong with you? Uh, listen to this, and that might give you a clue. Um, Nick, loveandradio.org, uh, Nick Vanderkolk. The podcaster's podcaster, the interviewer's interviewer. Um, Love and Radio is going forth into all the universe. Wherever you get your podcast, you can get this one. Nick, thank you for doing this story. It's such a personal artifact that you've given me, and I and I just I just really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, man. That that means that means loads to me because you you did all the hard work, honestly. All right, peace and soul. Thanks, man. Thank you.
Love and Radio, one of the OG podcasts. It's about to go public with a brand new season of shows you've never heard before. Wherever you get your podcasts, get this one. Love and Radio. Some of you are thinking, no way, no way. Others of you are thinking, I know, bro. I was in that crazy cult too. Lord have mercy. If you've missed even a moment of today's episode, follow Snap on any podcast platform, Snap Judgment. There are so many more audio journeys where this came from. If you know anyone considering joining a wacky, apocalyptic white supremacist cult, send them this episode. They tell me on Twitter when they try to sign you up for their group. Yes, you can rock a Snap Judgment t-shirt for the lovers and the storytellers only. Available right now at snapjudgment.org. Snap is brought to you by the team that refuses to join any club whatsoever except for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Listich. He will gladly accept any flyer you care to offer. Nancy Lopez, Pat Machini Miller, Anna Sussman, Renzo Gorio, Shayna Sheely, Taylor Ducat, Flo Wiley, John Facile, Marissa Dodge, Regina Bediaco, Davey Kim, Bo Walsh, David XMA, and Andy Nguyen. And this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, set up camp in the caves of Petra to wait out the last days at least until security arrives and still still not be as far away from the news as this is but this is 